you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans uh, chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. There's a massive locomotive. It's called the GE Big Blow. What a name, right? It's a train engine, and it actually goes three cars long. It has the fuel and the engine and everything that converts all that energy into power. And that power, actually, it can get up to 8,500 horsepower rating. So it's a very strong engine. And in the right conditions, it can even skyrocket up to 10,000 horsepower. It's a very, very powerful locomotive, which makes sense because locomotives, they pull heavy loads. And it's a lot of power, but you have to ask a question, which is, what if I'm not attached to that power? Does that power do me any good? In other words, if that locomotive was just moving down the track without any train attached to it, would it really get anywhere? And another question you might ask yourself is, that's a lot of power, but what if I'm not going the direction that that locomotive is going? Then I actually find myself at odds with that power. And all that power becomes useless. And we don't know what to do with it. And God forbid, that power would work against you. What would you do then? Well, in our spiritual relationship with God, this question of power is actually even more important than this question about a locomotive. Sometimes different influences come into our lives, and sometimes they can be overpowering. Things like money, fame, prestige, all the stuff that you want, that you know the commercials always convince you that you need to have. All the advertising that we're inundated with, uh, you have these things that come upon you and, and sometimes make you feel bad even about the direction you're going in your life. And so you wonder, well, where am I going? What am I doing? And this passage in front of us, asks us forces us to ask ourselves this question. Who or what is the dominant power in my life? What am I connected to? Where am I going? And what's my source of power? It forces us to really ask the personal question, what is my relationship with sin? Where is God in all of this? And of course, we just celebrated Easter. So we have to ask, what does Jesus' resurrection have to do with our lives? In other words, what is our relationship to the power of God? And what does that mean in terms of our relationship with sin? As you know, you've been in a series here, a four-week series. It's called Jesus is Alive. Now what? You can see it on your bulletin there. And we see that Jesus is alive, and so we have a chance to have a relationship with the one true God, and that relationship can grow. And we learned last week, uh, you all went through the passage, and you learned, learned that God's great love is there and available for us. And this week, we're going to learn about God's great power. And so the series has gone through four different weeks. The first week was knowing God, and then you looked at Ephesians uh, chapter 1. You saw that the Father gives the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That was in Ephesians chapter 1. Then you looked at knowing our hope. That's 1 Peter chapter 1 that you looked at. And you see there that you can set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus. So knowing hope. And then, knowing God's love. This was from Romans 8, a famous, beautiful passage that teaches us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And today we're going to see that because of God's power, we're dead to sin. God used his power to break sin and break the power of sin over us. So we're going to look at the text. 
We're going to draw out the one main point, and then we're going to look at some points of application. What do we do with this in our lives? As we introduce our, uh, this text, we have to remember this is the book of Romans. I'm sure we talked about this some last week in terms of what this letter was all about. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, some of those folks he had never met. And so he wants to get into the intricacies of the gospel. What is this good news that everybody's talking about? What is this? The, the church in Rome was probably founded uh, by the first uh, people who returned from Jerusalem. And so they had seen some amazing things, but Paul wants to give them all these details. So in this letter, he outlines the gospels. He, the gospel, he gives implications and gets into a lot of details, some of which are very weighty and uh, just very, very rich. And then in the latter portion of the book, if you read through the book of Romans, which I commend to you, as you get into the latter portion of the book, it gets really practical. It starts talking about practical things a Christian can do. In the segment of text before, before us, Paul explains a Christian's experience. So sometimes as Christians we use big words. We talk about justification. That's definitely in Romans. How do we get right with God? And then there's sanctification. How does God make us more like Jesus? How does he make us more holy? This passage is in the sanctification camp. And then if you read on, you also see glorification, which is what's going to happen when Jesus returns. So this passage is in the sanctification area. Paul has previously explained in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He also explained that justification depends on faith, and that was in chapter 4, verse 16. And then this is great news. He says that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 8. In this passage here, in chapter 6, we'll see that Jesus reigns and he has dominion. Jesus reigns and he has dominion. One of the things you need to know in terms of background of this text is that Paul, in many of his writings, but especially here, we're going to see it, he often imagines uh, an imaginary uh, opponent, like a debate partner, someone that he's going back and forth with. And so he'll lay out a, an argument, and sometimes it's laid out as if to answer uh, just an outlandish uh, kind of uh, question. And, and so this, this uh, approach makes his writing more dialogical, which is kind of just a fancy word to say they go back and forth uh, in the argument. Of course, it's Paul writing, so it's an imaginary opponent, but he's going back and forth. So if you even look here at our passage, uh, as has already been read, uh, in verse, uh, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1, uh, he asks this outlandish question. So let's read uh, the first four verses here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's saying, should we continue in sin? And the answer is, no way. Uh, this says, by no means. And this is something that Paul has used previously in Romans chapter 3. If you read on in Romans, he uses it in Romans chapter 9. But he asks this question, uh, and then to answer that question is how he lays out his argument. Should we continue in sin? No way. We should have no relationship with sin. Why? Uh, look at what it says here in verse 2. We who died to sin. 
There's no way to go on living in sin because we've died to sin. When we join ourselves to Jesus, we've joined him in his death, burial, and resurrection. When we give our lives to him, we're joining him even in his death so that we can be forgiven. We join ourselves to Jesus by repenting. That means turning away from sin and then believing in what Jesus has done. In this sense, we've also died. So it's not a literal death, otherwise we all wouldn't be sitting here, but it's a spiritual joining with Jesus and his death on the cross. So now we're on a new path. We're not going the way that we used to be going. We're not going in a direction that we chose for ourselves. We're going in the direction that God has for us because we're on a new path. And the word baptism has a sense of immersion. So uh, in other words, going completely under. So even uh, this word is used uh, of ships that had sunk, that they had been baptized in the water, they had gone completely under the water. And the sense is that when you give your life to Jesus, you don't just dip your toe in the water and say, yeah, I'll try a little Jesus out. You go all the way in with Jesus. You give your life to Jesus. You're totally immersed in Jesus. And so the, Christians, uh, the Christian tradition is to have a, an ordinance of baptism. That's something that Jesus outlined for us in Matthew chapter 28. And a Christian, soon after they believe in Jesus, has a physical baptism that reflects what happened to them spiritually. So spiritually, they're saying they join themselves to Jesus. And then physically, they act that out, in a sense, when they're baptized. And so Paul appeals to this common experience to illustrate the truth that he's describing. So think about baptism for a second. When you get baptized, uh, you're placing your trust in Jesus spiritually, and then you're doing that physically to demonstrate that spiritual reality. You see, when you become a Christian, no one can read your heart. Uh, no one can tell exactly where you're at. Uh, that's between you and the Lord. But as you obey the Lord, those kinds of steps become obvious. And one of the very first steps of obedience for a Christian is to be baptized. So when you're baptized, uh, the, whole, the whole process uh, has this uh, symbolism of being cleansed. You're cleaned. You're being uh, made new and refreshed. You're cleansed from sin. So that's what the water there is. But Paul here in this text, he's going into the details. Look at what he says. He says in verse 4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. So if you think about someone being baptized, they go down into the water... Of course, if we stay in water, we would die. And in a sense, when you're under the water, you're buried. But then we don't stay down there. We come up. Because Jesus, when he died, he didn't stay in the grave. He came up. He was raised from the dead. And that power of God manifested in Jesus' resurrection is what we're attaching ourselves to by faith. We're saying, yes, I want that to be true in my life. I don't want to die in my sin. I want to be forgiven and made new and live for Jesus. So you're saying, I'm following Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection when you're baptized. And this has implications for our future. It has implications for our physical future in the sense that all of us are physically going to die. And then what? That's an important question for each person to ask. And without Jesus, there's no hope for someone. But with Jesus, because Jesus raised from the dead, and we've attached ourselves to Jesus, we have hope that we will also be 
be raised. And not hope in the sense of a wishy-washy, but hope as in confidence in God. So we're going to be, in the future, raised just like Jesus was raised. That's a hallelujah moment. That's a hallelujah moment. That's something to shout about. It's okay, you can shout around here. We're not too deliberate. <laughs> but I'm not going to stay dead. When I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. And even my physical body be, will be restored. And I'll be raised up on that last day. It also has implications for how we live now. Because I know that Jesus died in my place. And so my old spiritual life is dead. And now I have a new spiritual life that's growing and is alive. I've died to sin. I don't have to continue in sin. Let's keep going here. Look at verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Our old way of life has been crucified. All those things that belong to the BC, before Christ person, are gone away. Now, following Jesus is not easy because you have to count the cost. You have to turn away from certain things. And in some cases, you have to turn away from certain hopes and dreams that you had for yourself. So you have to give all of that to Jesus your whole life without holding back. And what happens amazingly in God's grace is normally he gives us something better than what we would have created for ourselves. But all that we were or possibly could be apart from Jesus, we gave to Jesus. We gave that old life to him, and he took it with him to the cross. Why? Verse 6 says, look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In other words, so that the power of sin is broken. It has no more power over us. This is powerful to think about sin being broken. The imagery here that's touched on is enslavement. And that is expanded actually in verses 15 and following in another point that Paul makes. But it's the idea that you have freedom. So we have these two images here. Death and life and slavery and freedom. And with Jesus we have life. Verse 9 brings us to our major theme, and it's the power of Jesus over sin and shame. You say, well, wait a second. I don't see the word power there, but let's look at verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. That word dominion there, the root of it has a sense of Lord or master. So it's like saying it no longer is the master of He's no longer in charge. Now, we don't usually talk about lords and ladies and those sorts of things, but the idea is someone who's in complete control of the territory over which they rule. But death no longer has dominion. It's hard for us to imagine this because we live in a sin-sick world where all around us we see sin and the consequences of sin. And sometimes it seems very, very powerful. And the reality is actually it is powerful. It is very strong 
And it can't be resisted if you're not a Christian. Because any of us who have lived will say, uh, I hear you're saying the power of sin is broken by the death of Jesus, but you know, I look around this world and I see a lot of sin. And actually, it seems pretty powerful. It seems well-resourced. It seems like it's going on and having a great time. And in fact, sometimes I feel weak, and I don't feel that strong. Sin is the one that seems like it's powerful. Well, in a way, you're right if you say that. There's a lot of sin in the world because those who don't have Jesus don't have the power to resist sin. They're enslaved to it. They're enslaved to sin. Just like nicotine will enslave you if you start to smoke, in the same way non-Christians are enslaved to sin. Now don't get me wrong, some non-Christians can have some success with you know, like uh, going to some sort of group where they discuss with other people who struggle with a similar sin and they, they work together to try to contain and curtail their sin. But even if they do that, they're not able to shake the propensity to sin. They're not able to uh, stop being driven along by their lusts. And oftentimes people who have addictions or, or difficulties with sin, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll maybe stop one sin, but they'll replace it with another. And the next thing you know, they're just replacing one thing after another. And Romans 1 talks about how this leads to a downward spiral. And people wake up one day and they find themselves in a situation they never imagined. And their mama sure never dreamed for them, never wanted for them. That's how powerful sin is if you don't have Jesus. What about Christians? They sometimes still sin. You're telling me Jesus, when his death, uh, he conquered the power of sin, but... But I'm a Christian and I still struggle with sin. How is that possible? Well, here's the good news. We do not have to be enslaved to sin. But here's the caution. We're still enticed, tempted, tripped up sometimes by sin. And sin, let me just warn you, sin is a terrible, terrible trap. Uh, you know, you may have seen the movies or the old-time traps. And they, like, they set them up so that they kind of uh, have their arms open like this. And then there's a foot pad, and if some animal steps on that foot pad, snaps on them, and they can't get out. And sin can be like that. It can be a trap on you. Another illustration or way to think about this is anyone who's ever been fishing knows that you fish with a barbed hook. That, that kind of hook is easier going in than coming out. And sometimes sin is like that. This actually, in my opinion, is the reason why a lot of people don't turn to Jesus. They're scared to death of having to pull out those barbed, hooked sins that are in their life. Here's the good news. Jesus can heal even the wounds from a barbed hook. You can rip those things out, repent of those sins, and Jesus can heal you. The good news is, as Christians, yes, we're still enticed. Yes, we're still tempted. But we can say no. To that sin. It doesn't have power over us. It doesn't have dominion over us. We're tempted and we're tried, but we're alive in God, and we have the power to resist, not in our own strength, but in Jesus. We have the power to say sorry when we do mess up, and go and try to make it right in repentance and faith. Any sin that we've committed, we can turn away from by the power of the death of Jesus, and be made right God, and he can heal us and turn us into the people that we're made to be. We can be free. We don't have to linger in that sin. We don't have to wallow in it. We can be free. Let's read verses 12 and following. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to, to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, verse 12 says. That word reign there has a sense of a king. In other words, don't let sin be the king in your life. Who's the king in your life? Jesus is the king in your life. Sin, yes, it might entice you. Yes, it might be there. You replace that dominion with the dominion of the king, King Jesus. Your mortal body, your flesh, your, your human uh, physical body that you have does have needs and wants. And there's a way that it's made and it's beautifully crafted. And in fact, most sins actually uh, are not, uh, uh, they're, they're perversions of something good. In other words, something that God made for good gets twisted, gets messed up. One example is relationships. One of the most meaningful, beautiful things in a person's life is the relationships they have, maybe with a spouse or a friend or a son or a daughter. But a broken relationship is one of the most painful things a person can go through. And that's how sin is. It takes something good and corrupts it. Our mortal bodies have these passions, but we can't let them reign over us so that we obey them. So this leads us to our main point. Our main point is that God used his power to triumph over sin in the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm alive because God used his power to triumph over sin in that sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So Jesus now has all power so we can live for him. Jesus broke the power of sin. He overcame it all. He has all power and we can live for him. We're dead to sin because the power of sin has been broken in the death, burial, and then resurrection of Jesus. So how do we apply this to our lives? If God has used his power to triumph over sin, so now I'm alive. What do I do with this life? Well, verse 12 showed us already our first point of application. Don't let sin reign. Recognize your true king. Your true king is Jesus. Sin's not the king. Resist, resist temptation. Yes, there's going to be enticements and things that come your way that are tempting. Resist that. You do not have to succumb. Christians, yes, were tempted, but Christians have the power to resist in a way that non-Christians don't. So resist that. Now, you might say, I've been resisting this sin for a long time, and I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. Enlist a friend. Get someone to come alongside you. Here we have the groups here at Good News. Get in a group. Join a group. Get someone to pray with you, to encourage you. And remember something else. Being tempted is not the same as succumbing. Sometimes people feel guilty about being tempted about something. You know, if you're tempted to steal something, but you never actually steal it, you didn't sin. Don't confuse temptation with actually succumbing. The idea here is don't let sin reign and be the king of your life. Jesus is your king. So when you're tempted, you should say to yourself, yes, that's enticing me, but Jesus is my king. I'm going to resist. Number two, know what your passions and lusts are and don't fuel them. If you have a desire for alcohol, don't go to a bar. Don't buy that stuff. Don't put yourself in a situation where that's going to be a temptation for you. Instead of going to a bar, 
Go to church or go to Bible study or get together with a friend. Don't go to the liquor store. Go and do something nice for somebody. Sometimes the reason people drink is because they don't feel good about themselves. They've had a hard day or they have something difficult in their life or a terrible thing that happened to them in their past. Those things are real. You can't deny those things. And they want to feel better, so they drink alcohol. But there's other ways to feel better about yourself. One of them is to help somebody else. Help your neighbor. Be nice to someone in your neighborhood. Help out somebody who needs help. That makes you feel better inside. Start with simple things. Do what God's given you to be able to do. It might be a small gift. Maybe you could pick up trash for somebody. Maybe you could give someone a small gift. Maybe you could make cookies or soup or something like that. Okay, this kind of weather, we're getting warmer. Maybe soup wouldn't work. But find something that somebody would like and do that for them. And in doing good for others, you'll actually feel better about yourself. God gives us opportunities, and we have to seize them. You know, maybe you're a, a smoker, and you want to quit smoking. Instead of taking a smoke break, take a prayer break. Instead of getting out your pack of cigarettes, get out your pack of cards that has all the prayer requests of all your friends. Go outside, take some deep breaths, you know, stretch your legs, whatever you need to do, and then pray through the requests of your friends. Pray that God would give you the strength to resist temptation. Pray for your church family. Pray for your physical family. Know your passions, don't fuel them. The third one is don't be idle. It's related to the previous one. If you look at the verses here, what does it say? Verse 13 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought to, from death to life, and your members as God's instruments for righteousness. In other words, there's the resistance, which is kind of like playing defense. But that's not where you stop. You're supposed to get active and play offense. Get into the game. Use your gifts, talents, and abilities for good. Whatever opportunity God gives you, don't be idle. There are constructive and positive things and ways that you can spend your energy that actually only you are gifted to do. Things that you can do that I couldn't do if I was in your situation. So present yourself to God. In other words, make yourself available to God. Say, God, would you get to work in me? Would you use me for good? I want to do what Jesus wants me to do instead of fueling my passions and my lusts and the other things that entice me. Because sin has no dominion. So now I need to give my uh, talents to the king. The true king now is Jesus, not sin. Sin is not the Lord. Jesus has all power. He's the Lord. The fourth point of application here is get baptized. You know, Paul talks about the illustration of baptism. If you haven't been baptized, don't delay. Go ahead, get baptized. It's a beautiful way to signify outwardly what's going on inwardly in your heart. Give your life to Jesus. When you go to get baptized, you'll give your testimony. If you want to get baptized, talk to Pastor Mitch. Talk to myself. We'd love to talk with you more about this. Number five is release your sin and shame to Jesus. Sometimes the reason things have power on us is because we keep them kind of a secret and we, we kind of hold it in. Don't hold it in, I'm saying. I'm saying give it to Jesus. Release that. Uh, one of the things that's so hard about, if you've lived any amount of time, uh, sometimes we suffer the consequences not only of our sin, but also the sins that have been perpetrated against us. And those things are entangled. And sometimes it's not, our, it's not, what, happened, it's not what we did, it's what happened to us. It's our reaction. Give all those things to Jesus. He has all power. Don't think that the power over your life is in the, the reputation that people have about you, the things that people say about you. That's not the power. The power is not in your fears. It's not in your worries. Take all those things and give them to Jesus. Give all those things to the true king, Jesus. Release your sin and shame to Jesus. 
Here's the sixth point of application. When you do mess up, don't wallow in it. Just because you fell down doesn't mean you have to keep rolling for the rest of your life. You can get up. You can stand up. You can choose to do what's right again. And because of the blood of Jesus, sin is not as sticky. It'll slide off you. You can get up and say, Lord, I messed up. I shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have looked at that. I shouldn't have done whatever it was. The Lord will forgive you. Jesus' blood can cleanse you. So don't wallow in your sin. Instead, confess it, repent it, and get back to serving Jesus. Sometimes there's specific temptations that come your way, specifically because the Lord is using you for good. And we have an opposition that wants to keep us from doing those good things. So don't stay there. You are a blood-bought child of God. If you belong to Jesus, that's your identity. If you had a Christian identity card, that's what it would say on there. It would say, bought with the blood of Jesus. That's who you are. Your sin does not define you. That's not who you are. If you belong to Jesus, if you're giving your life to Jesus, you're a blood-bought child of God. You consider yourself dead to sin. That language of consider here that we see in this verse uh, has this sense, it's back in verse 11, it has this sense of count or accounting. How do you tally up where you're at? Uh, well, you tally up where you're at by pointing to the cross and saying, that's who I belong to. Jesus is my Lord. You can't allow sinful patterns to set in and define you. In other words, when you fall, get up and break that habit. Don't let it become commonplace for you. Tell the truth and don't lie. Tell yourself and others who you are. Don't believe the labels of your past. Instead, strive to get up and live for Jesus. Then our last point of application here, point seven, is this. Pray for the power of God in your life. Just pray. Just, just be honest with your Heavenly Father. Say, Lord, I don't always believe in you. Sometimes I lack faith. Tell him that. He already knows. Tell him that. And say, Lord, give me the strength to believe and unleash your power in my life. Help me with those things that are entangling me and keeping me back. Show me your mighty power and strengthen me so that I can live for you as I should. Jesus is alive. Now what? Well, we can know God. We can have hope. We can know God's love. And we've seen here, we have access to God's power. He forgives us because of what Jesus did. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that he makes available to us. We've been celebrating Easter just uh, earlier this uh, month. Now Jesus is alive is what we've been saying since Easter. And really every Sunday, that's what we say. And we meet on Sundays because that's the day that, first day of the week Jesus was raised from the dead. So every Sunday, in a sense, it's a mini Easter. And we're proclaiming to anyone who will listen and reminding ourselves, because if you're like me, you need some reminders, that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. So now I am alive to God dead to sin. Now I have the strength in God's power to resist temptation. What before enslaved me, now I can stiff arm. I can abhor what is evil and cling to the good. I have hope because I live for Jesus. I know the old is gone and the new has come. I know that Jesus loves me, that he cares for me, that he provides for me, that he gives me all the things that I need and I know he'll never leave me or forsake me. I know that he wants to share his power and his authority with me and to put me on mission with him. Jesus wants you, wants me on his team. 
You know, you know that old childhood game you play where you pick teams in the playground, and then you're just hoping you're not the last one picked? Jesus is saying, I want you on my team. I love you. I died for you. I want to use you to tell others who are enslaved to sin that there's an alternative, that sin's power has been broken, and there's life and liberty in Jesus. I'm dead to sin, and now I truly live because of Jesus and all that he did by God's gracious power. I'm telling you, it's some awesome power. It's really amazing power. This is the same God who made the whole world and all it contains, and he said it with a word. He's the same God who set the sun and the moon and the stars and everything into orbit exactly as it should be. He has all power. He's the same God who brought the children of Israel out of their enslavement in Egypt and through the Red Sea and through the wilderness and across the Jordan and around Jericho and gave them the promised land. He's that same God and he has all power. This is the same God who humbled King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king possibly in human history, and saved those boys out of a fiery furnace. It's the same God who was with Daniel when he was in the lion's den. I'm telling you, he has all power. And he's the same God who sent a little baby boy into the world to be born, to live, and to minister, and to die. He has all power. And that same power meant that Jesus didn't stay dead. But he rose up from that grave, and his foes couldn't do anything about it. He has all power. Sin is dead. Jesus has all power. He's Lord. We ought to praise him. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you that you have all power and that you've broken the power of sin. We're so thankful that Jesus overcame it all. We know, Jesus, that even right now, you're at our Father's right hand, advocating for us. So, Lord, we ask, would you give us the strength to resist temptation? Would you give us your power? Would you work out your power among us? Would you use us to speak the right words to people? Would you help us to encourage each other? Lord, would you forgive us for our sin? We know that your power is enough to make us clean even though we've done all sorts of things we wish we hadn't. And then there's other times that we knew we should have done something and we didn't do it. So Lord, we're here today and we celebrate that you have all power. We praise you. We thank you.